Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to worship today. I'm in a midweek or a midstream in the series entitled Blindsided, Seven Things That Everybody Experiences That Nobody Expects. So this is week five. Let me talk to you briefly about the first four weeks of this series. Whether you realize it or not, there are some things that you're going to experience that you never thought you would. Number one, cynicism. The longer you live, the more you experience, this is Ecclesiastes chapter 1, the longer you live, the more you experience, the more jaded you potentially come as you get older. And you're going to have to fight against it because you can't be an all-in Christian with a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ and still be cynical because Jesus isn't cynical. Jesus believed in people, Jesus had a lot of hope, Jesus believed that people could change, and so we just need to get cynicism under control in our life. The second was when Pastor Drew preached on compromise. Compromise is the difference between your public life and your private life. Nobody sets out to compromise, and in some ways, you know, I mean, all sin is compromising. But even after you've given your life to Christ, there's a tendency to drift, and you may find yourself involved in things or watching things on Netflix or whatever that three years ago you were like, yeah, I I never thought I would be doing that. Week three was about disconnection. Everybody needs friends. Everybody needs meaningful relationships. But in this connected world with Facebook and Instagram and all of the ability that we have to have friends halfway around the world that we've never met but we feel close to, the reality is we're actually more disconnected than ever. People leave the church, not really because of the preaching or because of the music. People leave the church because they don't feel connected to their tribe. Last week I talked about irrelevance. Nobody sets out and says, yeah, I want to be disconnected to the culture. But as you grow older, the reality is is that you have to struggle against irrelevance. Remember my jacket from last week? Everybody over 50 was like, I have a jacket like that. Everybody under is like, so what look are you going for? The vintage look? If it's the vintage look, then it's totally fine. But no, that jacket's out of date. Today, I want to talk to you of the seven, the hardest. The most difficult to preach and the most difficult to hear. I want to talk to you about pride. Everybody wrestles with pride. And the people who wrestle the most with pride are the people who say they have no pride. Self-righteous people are never self-aware. They always think the message is for someone else. So hang with me. C.S. Lewis wrote extensively on pride. He said these words. Pride is the great sin the utmost evil, unchastity. Unchastity is a word that we hardly ever use anymore. Unchastity really represents, you know, a promiscuous person sexually. Unchastity, anger, greed, 
drunkenness and all that are mere flea bites in comparison to pride. It was through pride that the devil became, well, the devil. Pride leads us to every other vice. It is pride in which the, it, it is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation, in every family since the world began. So let me tell you a story on me about pride. In 1984, I graduated from college. I had done well academically. A few weeks later, I married the love of my life, Holly, who is here today sitting with friends, and we've been married for almost 35 years, and she still looks like she's in her 20s. And wherever we go, in fact, just a few months ago, we were with our two adult daughters, and we were together, and somebody said to me, are these your daughters? And I said, they're my sisters. Okay, forget about that. That's not the story. All right? Somebody said, that's pride. That's true. A few weeks after we got married, we drove our car out to Kansas City, Missouri, where we were going to spend four years in seminary, and I was pursuing a calling to be a pastor, and everything inside of us was riding high. And why not? Right? I mean, through the gift of my parents, I had no college debt. We paid cash for a car. We had enough financial reserves to get us a few months into Kansas City while we could find jobs and settle down. And life was bright. The day after we arrived in Kansas City, the wheels fell off the wagon and would continue to do so for the next four years. We had trusted a friend who said, I have a friend who has this house near the seminary and you can put a down payment on it um, to rent and it'll be fine. I lived there for four years myself. I said, no problem. So it felt good going into a place we'd never been to before. Both of us were 21 years old at the time. And the next day when we arrived in Kansas City, we drove to this house, turned down a series of roads and got on this, this road. It was 75th Street. I don't know why I remember that. And as we drove down toward the house, the neighborhood was getting more sketchy. And then we started seeing cars, punk, uh, um, cars parked on the lawn of the front lawns of people, and tires were off, and, you know, hoods were open, and... Holly and I looked at each other. We're just two suburban kids from Philadelphia, right? I mean, we don't know. And we thought, we, we get this weird feeling, like a little scary. We pulled up to the house where the landlady was going to meet us. And we got out of the car and we looked over to our neighbor right next door who was sitting on his couch on his front porch in his underwear <laughs> drinking a beer. And we were frightened. 
And so we walked up to the house, the lady met us there, and she pulled out a ring of keys, and there were seven deadbolts on the door. And we walked through the house as quickly as we could, told her we'd get back to her on that, and drove away and just sat in a parking lot. I was like, well, what are we going to do now? We can't stay there. That's scary. God was good, and we eventually found a place, and... You know, we got jobs, but, you know, they were low-paying jobs, and the financial reserves that we had laid aside for establishing our time of settling down there, they were soon gone. And three months after we arrived in Kansas City, remember, we'd been married for three months, um, Holly got pregnant. We have no idea how that happened. It was like, what happened? That wasn't part of the plan. And while we dearly loved our daughter, that wasn't the issue at all. The issue was is that we found ourselves a thousand miles from home, two 21-year-old kids with no money, and Holly's great with child. And we, we, we felt overwhelmed. We had this low feeling on the inside. When we go to church, people would kind of look us over and It just was awkward conversation. Holly kept wearing her wedding ring, twisting it around to make sure that everybody knew that, you know, we were married. And I remember one time, it was on 435, Interstate 435, outside of Kansas City. We're on our way to church. And I remember we pulled off the side of the road to talk. And the topic of conversation was, how can we go to church? Because everybody looks good there. Everybody looks like they have their act together. We don't have our act together. Everybody looks at us awkwardly and just kind of gives us that, you know, smile like, oh, we're praying for you. And we weren't raised like that. And we eventually did go to church, but we struggled for four years. Two years later into our four-year journey in seminary, Um, Holly got pregnant again. This time it was planned. And about 20 weeks into the pregnancy, she lost the baby. And um, about a month later, Holly nearly died um, through complications of that pregnancy. And I, I remember walking into work, and I worked as a kidney dialysis technician about four blocks from the seminary. And I remember walking in, and there was just this group of nurses around, and I just collapsed into their arms. And I said, life is so hard, and Holly nearly died last night. And they just loved on us, but I remember thinking, this is just an incredible low point. Well, you know, I I did have a full-time job. Um, when I was in seminary working at a kidney dialysis unit, and I'd be at work at 5.30 in the morning, work until 8.30. 9 to 12.30, I would go to class. 1 to 5.30, I would go back to the kidney dialysis center. And three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, I would work until 9.30 p.m. And then I'd work every other Saturday. And while I was grateful for that, Holly and I just ran on fumes emotionally and physically for those four years. Now, the reason why I'm telling you all of this 
is to not elicit anything from you other than to say something about me. As hard as those four years of cemetery were, the hardest of all was my self-struggle with pride. It wasn't the lack of sleep. It wasn't the finances. It wasn't the mediocre grades. It wasn't any of that. It was the anger that I felt inside toward God that he allowed this to happen. It was the embarrassment that I felt over a variety of different things. I just got mediocre grades in seminary, just being truthful. I went back to school years later, and the only reason why that seminary took me, they put me on academic probation. Look up the phrase academic probation in the dictionary, and it says these words, not up to the standards of the academic institution. And I was embarrassed for that. How could I have done so well in college and not so well in seminary? I really struggled a lot with envy. It just felt like everybody was doing better than us. I had been on the in crowd in college. I was the out crowd of seminary. And um, it just looked like everybody's life was better. And it's embarrassing to admit all of this to you, but the truth is the only actual reason why I'm explaining this to you is because there is something inside of every one of you that sort of identifies because you've been through seasons where you were brought low. Now, I'm about to say something that I want you to understand the context of what I'm saying. And I don't say it lightly, but I want you to hear it for what it is. There's a very famous Christian by the name of Jamie Buckingham. He writes a lot of leadership books. And Jamie Buckingham once said these words, Whom God loves greatly, he beats the hell out of. And I look back on those four years, and I realize that's exactly what God was doing. He was beating the hell out of me. And he was bringing me low. And the truth is this. I look back on that time period now, and I know it's distance, and I know we have a tendency to romanticize about certain periods of our life, but I have to tell you that I'm grateful for that season because I learned more about myself and my whining, insecure, arrogant spirit. And I'm grateful for that. But here's the other thing you need to know about pride. Pride is the slipperiest of all the sins. And it pops up in all different places. And once you think you got pride under control, it pops up over there and it looks completely different than what it looked over there. What does pride look like on an everyday basis? Let me just give you some examples. It is pride that keeps you from coming to an altar when you know you should because of what other people will think. It is pride that whispers in your ear on Sunday morning, you don't need to go to church today. It's been a busy week. Why don't you just stay home and take a mental health day? Or the hundred other reasons why we find excuses to not come to church and worship the one true God who has given everything for you. It's pride. It's pride that keeps you from admitting that you were wrong 
when you and your spouse have an argument. It is pride that drives something called humble bragging. Humble bragging is when you sound humble, when you're piously talking about how much you love the Lord, how much you pray, and the sacrifices that you have made through the years for the gospel. That's humble bragging. It is pride that causes you to focus on how unworthy you are of God's grace. It is pride that cannot accept a compliment and simply say thank you. You have to go on and on and on about how you're really not deserving of that compliment. Just accept it and say thank you and move on. This may blow your mind. All anxiety, fear, and worry... All of it is rooted in pride. Now, you may think that that's just a Mark statement, but I read a um, Harvard psychologist that I don't even think is a professing Christian who said the exact same thing. All worry, fear, anxiety, all of it is founded in pride. Pride runs through everything. We think that people who have high self-esteem struggle with pride, but the truth of the matter is people who struggle with pride more are insecure people who are trying to overcome their insecurity by masking it with pride. So what exactly is pride? I went back to some theological diggings this week, and I, I... you know, just kept looking up what is pride. And here's what I discovered. Theologians say that pride has three strands to it. I'm going I'm to come back to this, so I won't spend a lot of time here. But you remember the ABCs in school? Pride is the AVCs. Arrogance, vanity, and conceit. Now, interestingly, we all kind of interchangeably use those words, but arrogance, vanity, and conceit really have some separateness to them. Arrogant people fly at 35,000 feet. They're always above the fray. Every once in a while, they will deign to fly down and be among us regular people. And then they fly back up to 35,000 feet. They actually isolate themselves. They actually put a little distance between themselves and other people, because at the heart of arrogance is a lack of accountability. We simply don't want to be accountable. And we think that the rules really belong to everybody else, but they don't actually belong to me. Vanity. Vanity has to do with a preoccupation of appearance. We want to present to the world a perfect you, a perfect marriage, a perfect career, a perfect family. It is vanity that drives you to do selfie after selfie after selfie after selfie and put it on Facebook. Conceit. Conceit is a spirit of superiority. Conceit has to do with being very aware of your social standing and the social standing of other people. Conceit is always trying to monitor, am I above you or below you? It's very class conscious. Here's how somebody has explained the ABCs. Conceit needs an inferior. Vanity needs admirers. Arrogance 
doesn't need anybody. Now there is one man in the Bible who seemed to have struggled more with pride than anybody else in the Bible. And his name was Paul. And he writes this beautiful letter in Philippians chapter, in, in the book, the letter to the Philippians, that is a very open letter. It's a full of rejoicing letter. But in the middle, Philippians chapter 3, he tells us his own struggle with pride and how God dealt with him and how he was able to get under and live a life that was pleasing to God. So with all of this that I've just said as an introduction to the message, let's get down to the meat. Would you stand, please? Turn to Philippians chapter 3. The text this morning is starting in verse 7, but I think I'm going to back it up a little bit and give a little bit more context. I'm going to start at the third verse. And if you get a little tired because you're standing a little while, that's fine. You can go ahead and be seated. But he begins with this. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort, though I could have confidence in my own effort, if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. Stop for a moment. What's the definition of hubris? Anybody know? Hubris is excessive self-confidence. It is self-confidence gone awry. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew, if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, well, I obeyed the law without fault. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For, I, for His sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage. The Greek word is doggy doo doo. Dung. That's the Greek word so that I could gain Christ and become one with Him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with Himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised Him from the dead. I want to suffer with Him, sharing in His death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. I do not mean that I have already obtained or achieved these things or that I've already reached perfection. But I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on one thing, forgetting the past, looking forward to what lies ahead. And I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. Let all who are spiritually mature agree on these things. If you disagree at some point, I believe that God will make it plain to you. But we must hold on to the progress that we've already made. Would you bow your heads? So would you be bold enough this morning and humble enough 
to say, Jesus, do you have a word for me today about my prideful spirit and what it looks like in me? And more importantly, how I can get rid of it and live a humble life. Amen. You may be seated. Paul took all of his pride, he laid it at the foot of the cross, and he began to live a life of humility. And that's the antidote to pride, is humility. Well, how do you get to humility? Paul says three things in this passage. The first is, you have to face your pride with ruthless honesty. He says in verse 7, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. You know what you need to do to be free of pride? Call it out. Call it for what it is. Prideful people will call pride anything but pride. We'll come up and rename it all over the place. Paul said that he had many reasons to be prideful. He had his heritage, he had his profession, he had his accomplishments, and he had his own righteousness. So when, it, when I read these scripture passages about him being a Hebrew to the Hebrews and a Pharisee to the Pharisees and all that kind of thing, when I read this, this is what I hear. I hear Paul saying, I was raised in a pretty healthy home, loved by my parents. Education was a big deal in my home, and my parents made sure that I went to the right schools Oh, by the way, I graduated with a Ph.D. from Harvard, Yale, Stanford, whatever you consider to be an Ivy League school. I've got the degrees behind my name. Oh, by the way, I did pretty well in my career. I was well known as a Pharisee. And my 401K is not doing too bad either. I don't know the retirement plan of Pharisees, but I think it's doing okay. And so what Paul was saying is, man, I've got all of these things as part of what I would consider to be a good life. But the truth is, they all were contributing to my prideful spirit. And I just had to call them out. So, let's go back to the AVCs. And let me ask you some questions. Are you arrogant? Do you have a tendency to act like a consultant? Flying at 35,000 feet above the fray, not really getting involved, a little bit isolated. Arrogant people are seldom vulnerable unless they carefully craft vulnerable moments to make themselves look vulnerable so they can be humble. Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells the story of a publican and a Pharisee, a tax collector and a Pharisee, and he says these words, the Pharisee stood by himself. I think that's significant. The Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed this prayer, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. Whoa. Arrogance. Two, vanity. Are you a vain person? Are you overemphasizing your image? Are you carefully crafting the you that you put in front of the world. Vanity gets us in trouble. So there's this story about this colonel that was newly made a colonel and transferred by promotion to the Pentagon. 
And he's sitting in his office early in the morning, and he's looking around, and he's kind of a little bit prideful, and he's thinking about all the accomplishments and his track of success getting to this point. And there's this private that knocks on the door and says, Colonel, can I, can I come in? And he goes, well, wait just a moment. And he wants to impress the private, so he picks up the phone right away and says, Oh, Mr. President, thank you for calling me so much and congratulating me on my promotion. I really appreciate it. Oh, I'd be happy to come by the White House next week. Oh, you want me to do that for you, Mr. President? I'd be happy to do so. Then he hangs up the phone, full well knowing the private heard everything. Then he says, Private, what can I do for you? Private comes in and says, I'd like to hook up your phone, sir. A preoccupation with image. Do you have an inward drive to present to the world a perfect you? A perfect family. A perfect marriage. And perfect kids. Now here's the flip side of that. You hide anything that's not perfect. Because that would hurt your image. Do you judge people by their appearance? Now, Holly's here, and Holly told me that ladies do this, so I'm just saying. Ladies, have you ever been sized up? Do you know what it's like to walk into a room and have another lady look at you? Start with your feet. All the way to your hair. And then they just were like, hmm. Now, if you're a conceited person, here's what you're doing. You're sizing them up and you're trying to determine where they're at in the pecking order. Because you're class conscious. The conceited person needs inferiors to make them feel better about themselves. If you are the person being sized up, how does that make you feel, ladies? It makes you feel small. It makes you feel put into a box. It makes you feel self-conscious. Oh, maybe they can see those 15 pounds. Oh, do I have enough makeup on today? Oh, I knew I should have done something different with my hair today. First Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. God says to Saul, who was ready to anoint David, long story there, but God says, do not consider his appearance or his height. I'm sure that King David was a handsome man, but there was nothing about King David that made him stand out. He was just a regular looking guy. We're we're only told a couple things about David, that he was handsome with a ruddy appearance. Red, red. Do not judge his appearance, for the Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Are you conceited, thinking yourself superior to other people? Are you dismissive of people who are beneath you or who do not measure up to your standards? Romans 12, 16, do not be pride, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. It's a command. 
James takes it a little bit further and he talks about how God has caused the poor people of this world to be rich in faith, while the rich people of this world tend to put their faith in their possessions. And so here's how pride works. Pride looks at people, and the, the context is the church, right? So, so James is talking about people who are pretty well off financially in the church, and they're just going around saying, I want the best seats in the house. And they weren't giving anybody who was poorer than them the time of day. And James says, no, no, you shouldn't be doing that because God has called those kinds of people. He's given them a rich-in-faith mindset that you don't have. And here's the crazy thing about pride. You can be poor and be prideful in your poorness that you have more faith than somebody else. You see the, you see the inversity, the inverseness of pride? It's everywhere. Pride blinds and hardens you. Number two, bring a notebook. Number one is face the issues of your life that are clearly prideful. Number two is bring a notebook. Someone has said that self-righteous people are rarely self-aware. In other words, prideful people are actually very unaware that they're prideful, but everybody else sees it. You deceive yourself into believing that you're always the expert and that you don't need to listen, but people need to listen to you because you know what's best. So I was on a website this week. All you got to do is type in the, the um, um, search engine, top 10 disasters based on pride. And one of those disasters is, of course, the Titanic. And James Cameron, you know who did the movie, the Titanic. James Cameron wrote a book on the Titanic, and here's what he said. He, he said two things. First of all, he made specific comment about the fact that one of the crew members, as the ship is sailing out, says to one of the passengers, not even God can sink this ship. And the second thing that James Cameron said is, it wasn't actually the iceberg that sank the Titanic, it was the pride and the hubris of the crew and the engineers that thought that it was unsinkable. Okay, what does all this have to do with bring a notebook? The humble bring a notebook. They seek to learn from anyone, anywhere, because they have a learning spirit, a lifelong learning spirit. And God takes special delight in bringing people your way who you think are social inferiors to teach you. Let me just give you one example. Down syndrome people are the most loving people on the planet. And they teach us so much about unconditional love. One of the most compelling videos that's out on Facebook these days, you know the whole abortion thing that's going on. You know, New York passed a law in Virginia, you know, had a, a debate and so forth. And there is a compelling video of a young man who has Down syndrome talking about the value of life. And it just brings you to tears. Because God has a way of taking social inferiors and teaching you a lesson. But you have to be open. And you have to have a notebook. Three, go low, take the towel. Go low, take the towel. 
For, the, for, for his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, doggy doo-doo, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I want to suffer with him. I want to share in his death so that I can experience the resurrection from the dead. What does it mean to go low? Well, prideful people enjoy the perks and the praise that comes with position. Prideful people enjoy titles. They enjoy the corner offices. The proud people take the high place. The humble take the low place. The humble seek to serve rather than be served. Let me just give you some examples. When you're sitting at Panera's, do you pick up your dishes and all of your trash or do you leave it for others to pick up? Do you offer your seat on the bus or the subway or train to somebody else? Now, hardly anybody goes through the toll booth these days with the actual people there. But remember those days before Easy Pass where you actually had to pull up to the toll booth and there was this person that, like, gave you a ticket? Do you acknowledge those people? Do you say hi to them? People who are in the customer service industry are oftentimes treated as non-people. Uh, take the card, move on. You, you just had an interaction with a person. Do you volunteer for grunt work? The projects that no one else wants. And can you do a kind act without anyone knowing? It, you go out of your way to be anonymous. People who are vain drop little hints along the way just to let you know that they did something special. Jesus went low and he took the towel. I'll come back to that. So I have this section of the message that wasn't actually going to be in the message because I was a little concerned about time. But I have two minutes left, so I'm going to say it. I had a couple thoughts that I want to throw in that actually don't fit neatly in the message. But here's the thought. It's better to go low before the Lord brings you low. (laughs) Proverbs 16.8, pride goes before destruction and haughtiness before a fall. Oh, look out, my friends. Whom God loves greatly. The second thought has to do with the Apostle Paul and some words he said to the church in Corinth, his second letter. He's talking about his thorn in the flesh and the purpose of it. And he said, to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and to keep me from becoming proud. So here's what I think. I think that because God loves you and he loves me, that God purposely allows certain things to be in your life that hurt you. But he's not doing it to be mean. He's doing it to keep you and me in check. I don't know what that is. For some of you, it's your marriage. You're highly successful in many things, but when it comes to your marriage, you and your spouse are not on the same page, and you've not been on the same page, and that is the great 
of your life. For some of you, it's your children. And your children are not walking with the Lord. Your children are involved in things that are painful for you to see that they're involved in. Maybe there's even a disconnect between you and your children. And you can praise God on a Sunday morning, and you can praise God for His goodness to you, and you can praise God for many different things in your life, but when it comes around to your kids, you're like, it's a wince, a thorn. Could be your health, could be your job. You expected that by this time you'd be so far along in your career path, but it's not. Could be your finances. It could be a hundred different things that God uses. I'm not saying God causes it. I'm just saying that God uses those things, and He leaves the thorn in the flesh, but He's doing it to keep you from flying high and being proud. Now here's what's interesting. A couple months ago I talked about the definition of wickedness. I always thought that the, the biblical definition of wickedness was like really bad sin, like, like high sin, like murder, rape, you know, like the really big sins. The definition in the Bible of wickedness is forgetting God. Leaving God. God out of the equation. Oh, by the way, that's the definition of pride. Running your life as if you really don't need God. And God, because He loves you, if if you're a Christian, right? God, because He loves you, there's always going to be something in your life that isn't quite right. And He's not doing it to be mean. He's doing it to keep calling you back to Himself. Does that make sense to you? So, here's my thought. Went out to Lowe's, and I bought a bunch of rags. Take the towel. When Jesus was with his disciples, Scripture says that he took a towel, wrapped it around himself, and began to wash his disciples' feet. And then you got old Peter that says, no, I don't want you to wash my feet, Lord. And then Jesus says, well, you have no part of me then if I can't wash your feet. And, Jesus, and then Peter goes, well, wash all of me. And he's like, stop, you know, stop it, okay? I'm not giving you a bath, okay? I'm just going with your feet today. Listen to this. You know what Jesus said? If you'll do the same as me, if you'll take the towel, you will be blessed. Do you know the pathway to blessing is to go low? That's it. When everybody else is going high, you go low. And if you'll go low, you'll be blessed. And that's how you'll keep pride at check in your own life. So I went out to Lowe's and I bought a whole bunch of towels. Now here's the embarrassing part. I totally ran out. There's like 75 people in the first service that completely got no towel. And so we had to have somebody else run out the lows for the second hour just so we get enough towels. So I'm hoping I have enough for this service. But here's my thought. I bought so many towels because prideful people don't want to come to the altar. So I'm calling you out. And we'll all know that if you don't pick up a towel, you're the most prideful person in the room. That's my thought. I may be off, but that's my thought. I'm just messing with you. Relax. It's okay. 
All right? So I'm going to give the benediction in a moment, and after that, you're free to go. But if you want to pick up a towel, here's what I want you to do. If, if you want to pick up a towel, you put this towel someplace this week that you'll remember right go low. Maybe you need to go low at work. Maybe you need to go low at school. Maybe you need to go low in your home. Just take the towel and go low. Does that make sense to you? Let's stand. Jesus, you love us too much to let us get consumed with pride when we call you our Savior. You purposely do things to bring us back, to put us in check. So today, as we have focused on pride, my prayer for me and for brothers and sisters in this room is that we would go low and take the towel. That we would call out things in our life that are clearly prideful and stop renaming them something else, but just call them out. And that we would humble ourselves and take a learner's posture and not feel like we're the expert in everything. So God, this week, help us to go low and be servants of the Most High God. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. God bless you, you're free to go. Hey, if I run out of towels this service, I'll have them next week as well, okay?